Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to the fourth member of the immediate family, the legendary bassist, one of the most recorded bassists in history, Leland Sklar. So Lee, like the other guys, has been around for about 50 years. And in that time, he's worked with a lot of the same people that the other guys have too, like Jackson Brown and James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt. And since we've already sort of covered all of those, I didn't go back to the well on some of the same artists that we've talked to talked about before. But in addition, one of his longest standing uh, partnerships has been playing with Phil Collins. And so we go deep on some Phil Collins stuff. In fact, that's why you're listening to Doesn't Anybody Stay Together Anymore off No Jacket Required because this song is awesome. This album is awesome and Lee plays on it. So we talk a lot about Phil. We talk about some, some of the time he played in Hall & Oates. And then this one's a little more all over the place. We cover people like Neil Sedaka and Paul Williams and Dolly Parton and Joey Scarberry. There's a lot of Lyle Lovett in here. Anyway, there's a bunch of stuff, a lot of like TV theme songs that he's played on and movie soundtracks. Anyway, I, as with the others, people like Lee have seen and done it all. Some things have really great stories, some don't, but we just try and poke around and see where there is where there's gold. And uh, Lee's one of the best there is. We also talk a lot about, if you guys aren't aware of this, he posts daily videos on YouTube. They're all between about 10 and 20 minutes long. And it's him telling stories about songs he played on or albums or artists he toured with or whatever. They are so much fun. And so we talk about that and some of the other extracurricular projects he has going on as well. Lee is the best. I hope you enjoy this. I don't know how you couldn't. He called me from his home in LA. I feel like I should kick this, <laughs> like I should kick this off though with a little bit of an apology because uh, your daily videos are so much fun. And I was watching one the other day and you were, you seemed really exhausted and you were saying something, if I remember right, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, you know, I've just been doing so many interviews and I'm so wasted and I'm so, tired of hearing myself talk and I'm listening to that thinking oh no that's going to be me in a couple of days and so I hope well, that I make this a pleasurable experience we're good. for you <laughs> we're good I, ju I just finished a, a, a two hour zoom thing to London with with a whole room uh, with a whole not a room but a whole yeah. page full of drummers oh. and it was a ball because I worked with a drummer named Neil Wilkinson for a number of years with Veronique Sanson we toured France for for like 13 years together oh and stuff. Gosh. He's an amazing drummer, and he and another guy have this like it's like a podcast, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, but it, it's primarily it's a drummer's one. But they invited me to come and talk, and it was it was really fun. But Good. I really enjoy these. You know, I, I've always been really comfortable doing interviews. It's just like so, the hard part has been just with the quarantine yeah. and trying to sustain a level of you know, every day just wanting to do something creative and mm -hmm. be interesting when, you know, everything is at a distance. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's surreal, but, uh, no, I'm good with this. And then good. as soon as we're done, I'm going to go do my, my YouTube for the day. Nice. And, uh, I'm going to visit some more section, uh, songs today. Excellent. And, uh, now, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, lo I'm loving it. Good. Those daily videos are so fantastic. And I mean, you've seen, I've heard you comment on how, how shocking it is to you that suddenly like 100,000 people are looking at you every day yeah. wanting to hear these stories. 
it's kind of mind-blowing to me. I mean, I was talking to Rick Beato about that, who's kind of like the king of uh, YouTube. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, he's got, you know, a million, 600,000 people, and he's mm-hmm. been doing it for years. And we we talk, and he, he really helped get things going because he talked about it on his page. And then people came over, but he said, Christ, I've never seen anybody mm-hmm. go over 100,000 in like seven weeks. He <laughs> said it usually takes like a couple of years to yeah. get there. But but it's it, it for me it's really cathartic. Good. Uh, I really I, I'm really enjoying it. There's no monetization for mm-hmm. me on this stuff because practically everything I'm talking about is copyright protected. Right. So right. So I just have to do it do it for my own edification. Well, and uh, but he laughed. He said, "Who would think a, a 73 year old bass playing <laughs> sideman would you know, get this kind of? It's, it's not like a 13 year old girl who's picking her nose that gets two million views." <laughs> right. Well, it's genius. And I've been since starting this. One of the I should say one of the inspirations for starting this podcast is a belief that I have that one of the thing one of the most valuable pieces of currency in today's music business is storytelling and that's become a you know that's a word people throw around creative people and i'm not i'm not saying this derogatorily but filmmakers are storytellers and people who write books and people who write movie uh, music but i'm saying like to intimately tell people like you have this is what i was thinking and this is what i was doing when i played this song or that song that's the value that people don't get anymore i mean yeah. Music is going to stream like a faucet all the time. But to get the nuggets of wisdom yeah. that you are imparting, that's currency. That's value. And that's why the well, I, you know, stuff like this is popping up. Yeah, well, I, I've been hit on for so many years, people saying, you got to write a book, you got to write yeah. a book. And it doesn't interest me in the least. Mm. But this format, to me, is, is I just like, you know, com- completely spontaneous storytelling yeah. And be able to, you know, because I've seen a bunch of the books for everybody from David Crosby to Kenny Aronoff to Ronstadt to Phil Collins and, and Lukather. And, you know, I think it's great, you know, but they, they all get involved with like writers that work with them and really mm-hmm. try to get this stuff together. But just, you know, I just am enjoying this kind of like yeah. fireside chat. Love it. Uh, thing. And if somebody at some point wants to make a compilation of all of these things mm-hmm. and, have it as as something that that, that could be used potentially yeah. for you know whatever purpose. Some documented history. Yeah. This format, this format to me is fine. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it, and and I'm going to keep doing it even if if and when things open up again. I've Good. told you know people that I'm going to take this on the road. I'll introduce you to whoever <laughs> I'm working with and show you venues and talk about gigs and That's film great. gigs and. You know, because I'm in, I'm really having a great time. But Good. let's get on to your business. Yeah. Okay. So let's. Uh, well, I I'm happy to talk about that, and we'll talk about immediate family here in a little bit too. But I did want to say, and we should kick it off with Phil. Now it might even choke me up. I was finally able, after being a Phil fan for most of my life, to able to see you guys live here in the Pepsi Center last fall. Oh, okay. It, um, it was. A really emotional night for me, and I think about it a lot because I feel like Phil, thank goodness, is having a little bit of like a career reevaluation. He was so mm-hmm. prevalent and powerful and overexposed to some degree in the 80s that people just were over it. And he recognized that and said, okay, fine, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go to Switzerland or whatever, and you won't have to hear from me anymore. 
And doing that and hearing about his health struggles and hearing about his personal struggles and whatever, over the years, generations like mine are like, wait a minute, I grew up with Phil. I miss him. I love him. Come back, you know? And he's finally getting this wave yeah. of recognition that wouldn't have happened 30 years ago because his, <laughs> you know, the popularity was just too much and on the other side of it. Do you see this too? Yeah. Yeah, I, we all we all felt that. I mean, it was real interesting when it was pitched uh, back in 2004 when we did the I first remember. final farewell oh, tour. Right, right. Um, when we did that, and at the end of that, he was doing the music to Tarzan mm -hmm. um, on Broadway, and they uh, the producers said they wanted him there for the rehearsals. And we had two big legs of that tour left, and we had to cancel them. It was like Africa and Southeast Asia. Mm. And by the time he went back there and sat on his ass and had to cancel all this work, he was pretty much done. They had mm. committed to a Genesis tour after that, and they did that. Those were usually short um, tours, just mm -hmm. big, giant venues. But I never expected to work with him again. Mm -hmm. And then when they decided to do this Not Dead Yet tour, mm -hmm. it was only going to be three gigs. It was going to, I mean, really? each one was a week long. We were going to do a week in London, a week in Cologne, Germany, and a week in Paris. Yeah. And it ended up turning into almost two and a half years. Yeah. I, I think that the, the thought was, would an audience accept seeing a guy who was so robust and all over mm -hmm. the stage and all this stuff as a frail older man mm -hmm. sitting on a stool mm -hmm. and they sold out every gig we had. I mean, it was, it was South America, Europe was all stadiums. He's doing 70,000 people a night and they were yeah. screaming for more. Yeah. So it was, it was cathartic and mm -hmm. it was fascinating. The response was, was just incredible. And yeah. I think it shocked him. I, yeah. mean, I, I think management and everybody thought, you know, It'll be a great show because the band's really, you know, great. And, mm -hmm. uh, it, it should just, it should really rock. But it was, it's all predicated on how Phil's feeling. Yeah. And as things started going, he became more and more engaged. And then especially having his son sitting right behind yeah. him, you know, carrying the torch now. Yeah. That to me was like a deep thing to, to be up there. And some of the looks that would go, because I've known Nick since he was born and mm -hmm. he was a really good drummer when he was four years old. Wow. Wow. Uh, and it's been a remarkable journey. And, and he didn't get the gig because he's Phil's son. He uh -huh. got the gig because he earned it. We auditioned him and, and other people. And That's and amazing. he really uh, was it was great. So I, I I loved it. I'm glad you got to see that. Yeah. There's no telling what the future holds because Genesis was supposed to go out at the end of the year, mm. and all that's been put off because right. of everybody's put off. Yeah. And uh, they're probably gonna maybe do their tour next year, um, okay. and then after that, what Bill ever works again? I I don't know. I mean, it's right. it's not financial certainly with him, but. It's whether his ego would like yeah. it, and and so so we'll see what happens. But yeah. I, I adore the cat, and I love playing with him. Yeah, yeah, that was a uh, that was such a great night, and I just so happened to have been in Paris the week on vacation, the week that you guys were putting on those shows, and I was trying to go, and it was we were on vacation. My wife didn't want to go, and I didn't want to spend the money to go by myself, and I was so hoping that it would come back around and eventually you did you played Denver and I'll never forget I was up in the nosebleeds but I remember at the end when Take Me Home starts and it's such an emotional song anyway and the whole crowd is standing up even people in the nosebleeds like me 
and I can't. I want to sing along, and I can't because every time I open my mouth, I'm starting to cry. It, because it was. It mm-hmm. felt like a living wake. It felt like we know Phil is frail. We're worried about him, and we're going to throw a like an honorable funeral for him while he's still alive, just to let him know that we love him. You know what I mean? That's what yeah. that night felt like to me. Yeah. 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 It was deep. Yeah. In the same way when we did the James Taylor Carol King reunion mm, tour. Right. And it was one of these cathartic moments of, mm-hmm. you know, looking out in an audience and you're seeing like three generations all sitting together singing the songs. And um, I mean, there were, there were times in the shows where we would just tear up because mm-hmm. it was so, so emotional for us to, yeah. to do it. And I felt that way with Phil. Like, it, it, like every night when we play in the air, mm. it's like, you know, you can feel the anticipation yep. for the drum fill, and mm-hmm. there's just something that goes on that mm-hmm. that's really indescribable that you can't verbalize. Agreed. With those kind of things, it's Agreed. so visceral. Now, speaking of verbalized, I have to ask: when you guys were making "No Jacket Required" and you're recording yeah. "Don't Lose My Number," did anyone take Phil aside and say, "Phil, what on earth are you talking about?" Because that song we is so weird. <laughs> we did that a lot. Really? A lot of songs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Phil, Phil's real funny. I mean, it's like when we did the studio. Uh-huh.
Phil did a lot of things where he would just kind of spontaneously sing uh, while we were tracking and then later on would go in and refine his vocals and stuff. Mm -hmm. And Susudio, I think, was really a, originally a throwaway mm -hmm. um, phrase. Yeah. And then never found anything else that, that fit the spot, so he left it in. Yeah. So I don't really think it means anything. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, it was just some kind of guy. Billy, go ahead. Billy left. Billy gave us one of the funniest videos we ever did, which which I, I still love. I uh -huh. mean, the... It was so much fun making that video. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that Phil and Genesis were totally into yeah. was, was the videos. And look at the spitting image of stuff that's like it. that was done for Land of Confusion. And mm -hmm. man, it's it's just great. Yeah. Do you, um, I mean, are you even playing on Susudio, on the version on the CD? No. I don't even see you listed there. No, no, it's all David Frank. That's what I thought. Uh, I love David like Frank. About five synthesizers. Yeah. It was all all programmed. And yeah. then when we heard the track finished, I look at Phil and I said, Well, you sure fucked us over. <laughs> <laughs> How are we gonna do this live? So it took a, it took some effort to, yeah. to recreate it live. And yeah. then it eventually morphed into being its own entity rather uh -huh. than trying to copy exactly what the record has. Because I started having to use like an envelope filter and doing all this stuff that was alluding to synth bass mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. And we finally just made it our own, you know, because yeah. the song's the song. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a bunch of songs that I think you've worked on. You can correct me if there's a story there. We'll hear it. If there's not, we'll move along. But one of my favorite songs on that album, which I think is a perfect album, by the way, is uh, "Doesn't Anybody Stay Together Anymore." And um, yeah, it's not one of the hits, but it's first of all, it's a great showcase for the drum sound that he made famous at that time and that is a song i yeah. believe you play on do you have any memories of the recording of that track well not that track specifically i just mm. remember doing the album okay and, and and like the other day one of my posts was about a, a long long way to go yep, i saw that one Yeah, and the thing is, so many albums have such spectacular songs mm -hmm. internally mm -hmm. in them, but people like they get hung up on a couple of the hits, and they don't really pay that much attention to some of these other gems mm -hmm. that are tucked away in the album. Yeah. And those songs are like that to me. When I listen to the albums, those are the songs I gravitate towards. Yep. Um, yeah. the, a more emotional, more interesting. Yeah. And. Uh, but the album was a ball to do. Uh, I mean, I, I had met Phil doing a Lee Rittenauer album. Oh, yeah. Back, back around 1980, I think, or 81. Okay. So, and Phil and I, we knew who each other were. 
but um, we had never met before this thing. And he called me to do um, Face Value mm-hmm. and do that tour, but I was already committed to James Taylor at that point, so I had to say no. But I said, man, down the pike, if you ever mm-hmm. want me, I said, let's let's talk, I'd love to do it. And that's when he called me to do No Jacket. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I flew over to London and we recorded at Townhouse Studios with Hugh Padgham. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was amazing. It was yeah. it was great. You know, I was a fan, and just to kind of be sitting in there, in, in that studio, and, and listening to, especially you know, the iconic sound that they created. Mm-hmm. It was pretty special, and mm-hmm. that that was where I met Daryl Sturmer the first time, yeah. and uh, and then Peter Robbins. The thing with Phil is the recording was was somewhat different than when we would be touring because he would do a lot of the keyboard stuff himself and then but when we hit the road j peter robinson was the keyboard player and you know he would mm-hmm. do the drums but then we would have chester when we hit the road so you know different dynamics to the recording and the live yeah. aspect of it okay yeah well you guys sounded great when i saw you i think it was october or something like that anyway it was one of the most memorable nights of my life uh one of my That's great yeah one of my very favorite bands top three of all time is hall and oats and you were a you were a member of Hall and Oates, but you were a member of Hall and Oates during their sort of wilderness years. You know, there were all these albums like Bigger Than Both of Us and Beauty on a Backstreet that fans aren't even aware are out there sometimes because they don't have the yeah. gigantic hits. But those albums are so good, and I wonder how you came into their orbit. How did this happen? Um, I I came into it because. I, I did a bunch of work over the years with a producer, guitarist named Chris Bond. Hmm. And and Chris ended up producing the album, the, the Silver album that mm-hmm. had Rich Girl and Sarah Smile and all that on it. And he, he, he was the one who contacted me to do that album. And, and I, I don't remember, I, I know I, I did a bunch of songs on it, like Rich Girl mm-hmm. and stuff. You can rely on the old man's money. And then when we followed through after that with Beauty on the Backstreet and the, and the other stuff after that, 
it seemed like a logical continuum, mm. but for some reason, the, the songs like Sarah Smile and stuff weren't there to the to mm-hmm. the listening audience. Mm-hmm. For, for good for them. I mean, they've been working, you know, forever, yeah. and uh, you know, they're, they're still one of the most successful male duo mm-hmm. acts in the history. You know, they're right there with the Everly Brothers and yeah. and stuff, but. But the success that that album with Sarah Smile and Rich Girl had uh, was never kind of met again. But right. it was Chris Bond who brought me into the fold on that one. Okay. And, uh, but I loved it. I loved it, man. Sitting there with those guys' voices, singing. Mm-hmm. I mean, Daryl was like, just give me a break. And yeah. John and I have been friends. Fr- Daryl and I, once in a while, we'll bump into each other. But uh, John and I have... We see, mm-hmm. we've talked and seen each other more often, mm-hmm. and I still have a real, real big place in my heart for those guys. I think they were a, a really a remarkable act. I do too. Really was part of it. And uh, much like with Phil, um, the w- one of the reasons I love them is because so many of the album tracks that people don't know are equally as good or interesting as the hits everybody knows. And there's yeah. a um, there's a few, and I'll just I'll throw a couple of these out there. And like I said, if there's a story, great. And if not, that's okay. But I, your playing on them is what part of what makes them special to me. One of my favorite songs of theirs is on Beauty on a Back Street, and it's called Bad Habits and Infections. It's kind of weird because there's almost this like Tin Pan Alley uh, Broadway thing, not Broadway, but whatever it is, like musical theater thing going on in the middle. And then it crashes in with these big waves of sound and your vo- your bass is going, it's all rubbery and bouncing around. Do you remember this at all? Not in the, you know, the, the, the real problem I have <laughs> um, is, is the fact that when I work on a project, yeah. generally... By the time it comes out, I've done a whole pile of other projects, right. <laughs> and if and if somebody doesn't send me the album to check out, I uh, rarely hear anything. And of like the twenty six hundred albums or so <laughs> that I've worked on, I would say I probably have about thirty to forty of them. Yeah. Oh, really? So, 
Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, so there, there's so much stuff I've worked on that I never heard it finished. Uh-huh. Um, have no no idea how it turned out because because for me, it, as much as I don't really consider it a gig, uh-huh. it was a gig. You, know, you do you, you come in and you do your job uh-huh. and you do it to the best of your ability. And and I try to treat every album like if I get called to go in and work with like Hall and Oates, uh-huh. I treat it like I've just joined Hall and Oates mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. part of the band and I have a vested interest in it. But when the when my part of it's over with. Um, many times I, I've finished my parts and I haven't even heard the vocals yet. I have yeah, no idea true. what's coming. Right. I mean, they, they haven't done horns or strings or any sweetening or mm. anything. So for most albums, if I'm asked about them, it's it's very hard to comment mm-hmm. on uh, on some of the songs just because I never really heard yeah. them. Or if I heard them, I heard them once, you know, 25 years ago or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, it's, yeah, I thought that might be the case. Just, yeah, but some I will remember. So okay, I'll throw out everything. Sure. Well, let me ask you this: Can you? Is there a song from your Hollow Notes period that you do remember? Where you was it a contribution you made, or it was a particularly fun day, or you had uh, some great Mexican food at the nearby restaurant while you were recording? Or can you think of a song from that period that does mean something to you? Well, when we did the album with Sarah, with Sarah Smile and Rich Girl on it, mm-hmm. I don't know what the title of that was, whether it was just well, Paul the, and Oates, or, but it was, yeah. when, it was when they're, you know, the silver cover with, yeah. you know, them and their makeup. And everything. But we cut that at Larrabee Studios down on Santa Monica Boulevard um, and Larrabee down in Hollywood. And um, the funny part of it was we came in the studio, spent, I think, five days, cut the, all the tracks on the thing, finished that. Well, in the next room, Kiss was working. Ah, yes. And they were they were working on this one song when we came to the studio. When we finished the album and left, they were still working on that song. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. it was it, it was <laughs> insane. Uh, but I always remember things like you said, like with food. The, the, if you walked out the door of Larrabee Studios, which doesn't exist anymore, very few uh-huh. of the studios exist anymore. There was a restaurant right across the street called the Taming of the Stew, oh. <laughs> and it, and it was great. I remember going in there, and Burgess Meredith was holding court. Really? Of, yeah, you know. So the, 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 you know, I I remember the things like just around the corner from the studio was an Orange Julius. Oh yes. And, <laughs> and made a point of hitting the Orange Julius every day and getting a Julius with a with an egg. Yes. And it, you know, and now we talk about it salmonella and all that. And you're sitting there drinking raw eggs every day. <laughs> but um, when the tracking started, um, I just remember as soon as they sat down and started singing, I just remember being going, "Whoa!" Yeah. Because I didn't know who they were. Yeah. It, you know, it was it was a it was a call. And as soon as like as soon as Daryl started singing, I just went, "Oh crap! This is going to be great." And then as John joins in. And, and I hear this harmony, and mm-hmm. I just went, yeah, this yeah. is great. And, it, yeah. and there's a, so many projects like that where you, as soon as it begins, you just kind of, your breath gets taken away a little bit, and you just go, wow, mm-hmm. this is going to be cool. Um, you you toured with them, too, as well, right? No, no, I never did any oh. live gigs with them. Oh, really? Well, oh, I the recording. Okay, okay. Yeah, I've had John on here, and he's just about the nicest guy in the world. And um, Yeah, he's great. You do wonder how that partnership endures, but it just does. There's <laughs> there's a magic yeah. there that they can't well, capture probably individually. 
yeah, it's probably when the residual checks come in. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, but yeah, there's so many of these groups that you know yeah. you hear about it, the, the inner workings of them, the Eagles and the, the Everly Brothers. And you used to get in fist mm-hmm. fights on stage and mm-hmm. stuff. You just kind of go, just do the music. Can't you put it away for a moment? I know it's true. Yeah. It's true. Okay, let's talk about a song I know you remember and worked on and have talked about, and that's "Laughter in the Rain" from Neil Sedaka. One of the great yeah. tracks ever, and it just, you can't listen to that and not just have your day brightened and put a smile on your face. And I know you did a little YouTube video on this, but if you could summarize, why does that song and that project mean so much to you? Well, I, I mean, growing up, I was such a fan of, of Neil's writing and, and and his partnerships with Phil Cody and, and Howard Greenfield as, as lyricists. They created so many songs that were like, if I think back to being in junior high and high school and at dances and things like that, that was the stuff that was being played. So there was a, a part of me that, that had a very nostalgic feeling. And when uh, Robert A. Pear, who engineered and, co- and produced Sadaka's Back, or his, his return album, um, and he had engineered our section, first two section albums, so we had a, a standing relationship with Robert already, when he called and said, yeah, we're going to do a Neil Sadaka project, I just went, really? Oh, man, that, 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 that's this trip down. Suddenly so much of your earlier life comes yeah. come welling back. Yeah. And then you walk in the studio and you meet Neil, and he's the sweetest cat in the world. Mm-hmm. He's a monstrous pianist. He's mm-hmm. got the most beautiful honey voice, mm-hmm. and he's got great songs. So mm-hmm. we had an absolute thrilling time, and it was the section basically who who did that album mm-hmm. uh, with him it was Kunkel on drums and percussion and myself and Craig Durge on keyboards along with Neil and and Danny Korchmar and, and Jim Horn mm-hmm. who played on on our second section album uh, on sax mm-hmm. so it was like this family get together but Neil was absolutely the most delightful artist to be around and you just hear that you know there's certain artists like you put on your headphones and mm-hmm. you know, it's like streisand or willie nelson or joe mm-hmm. cocker or, you know or willie yeah you know, i mean there, you hear that two notes and yeah. this person is defined yeah. and neil was like that to me neil as soon as he started singing i just went that's the voice yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i loved it i loved all the songs that bad blood 
Mm-hmm. There were so many great songs on, on the stuff that we did with Neil. And, and it was a, a, a funny period because I guess Elton was a huge fan of his and signed mm-hmm. him to Rocket Records. Yeah. And uh, so the whole thing stemmed from that, that situation. Well, that song is, eventually, holds up. It's so good. Yeah. I, I, when I heard it, when I, because a couple of people I had, you know, mentioned a bunch of different people that I'd worked with just to get people going. So a couple of people said, oh, man, you did stuff with Neil Sadaka. Can you do that? Uh-huh. And that's what made me dig, you know, go back on YouTube and, and dig up Laughter in the Rain. Nice. And uh, and I sat there listening to it. And the thing is, I can distance myself from the job mm-hmm. and sit in and appreciate and listen to music I've worked on and not be judgmental about my parts and that, this and that. I really like to listen to it as an entirety and, mm-hmm. and a, um, a space and time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say one of my favorite things is to watch you listen to Laughter in the Rain in that video. Watching the joy on your face and the head bobbing and the you can see the the wave of memories working through your mind and coming out on your face. And uh, I just thought that's making that's enhancing this moment even more. You know, we all love this song. Watching Lee love this song is even better. So anyway, yeah, going I, back to those videos. Yeah, I, I can immerse myself in these really easily and just kind of relish the moment that, mm-hmm. that the, both both the moment of creating it and also the the, the moment of appreciating it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just being because I'm like an, a, an uber fan yeah. so much that you know when I hear it, it, I, it puts a smile on my face. I kind of went through a similar thing. One of my real early practice things that I used to do was play along with LPs that my parents had. Mm -hmm. And one of those LPs was the Righteous Brothers right now, their Mm -hmm. first album. Mm -hmm. And I would sit there with their Magnavox, you know, hi-fi, and I'd be sitting there playing Coco Joe and, (laughs) you know, all all these great songs from that album. And then eventually I ended up becoming really good friends with Bill Medley and working Mm -hmm. with him. Wow. And it and it, it's still like sometimes like uh, I'll come home and there'll be a message on the answering machine going, uh, Lee, this is uh, Brother Bill calling you, and, you know, <laughs> and I kind of get I get goosebumps. You know, I go, yeah. Bill Medley, why does he know me? That is kinda. amazing. What a life. Now let's talk. So the section, I mean, the modern day version of the section basically is this immediate family project, and uh, going back to your friendships and relationships that you guys have had going on for 50 years now. Yeah. I've talked to all the guys. Yeah. What is your take on this? Why was now the time for the five of you to come together and start this project? And I know about the history well, of Danny getting the deal out in Japan or whatever, but why stick yeah. with it? Why was this the moment? Well, I'll tell you, first off, there's a, a great uh, differentiation between the section and the immediate family. Personnel is different. The, the, the section was Danny Russ, myself, and Craig Durge on mm-hmm. keyboard. And the fact that we're, we're all, that three of the four of us mm-hmm. are in this thing it is a unique situation, even though we've all stayed in touch. And I, I do projects every once in a while with Craig, and he lives like 10 minutes from me. Wow. Um, he, he went off and did other things with his wife, Judy Hensky, who was a, a major artist oh, during the folk yeah, period. I remember her. I didn't know they were married. Yeah, okay. and that's Craig Durge's wife. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you look at the section, and it was a, a rock fusion instrumental band. Mm. So it's it's completely different. And then Waddy never played with the section. 
but when we would do James Taylor and Ronstadt and all those things, a lot of times it was Cooch and Waddy on those. Mm-hmm. Um, so Waddy was part part of the scene, but he was never in the section. The, towards the end of the section, uh, we brought in David Lindley, and mm-hmm. Lindley started playing with us. And uh, we and on some gigs we had Joe Lala, who was in Manassas and, and did stuff with uh, CSN. Uh, would uh, come in and play percussion with us. Mm-hmm. But the immediate family is really a completely different animal from that. And, okay. and um, I was thinking in terms uh, of and, the super and, group and, and, with you guys. But yeah, it, now's the time for this thing. Continue, sorry. Yeah, and it was one of those things that when Cooch got the record deal and, and then decided to call all of us back together again, I mean, it was really great because we've all remain friends workmates russ and i were touring you know pretty regularly uh, together with lyle lovett and his large band mm-hmm. um uh, waddy uh, i've done tons of records with waddy mm-hmm. and uh, so there was a, a comfort zone about mm-hmm. this when cooch got the deal and he called us and we were all in town and available mm-hmm. and he had been living back in new york and had moved out here and had connected with Steve Postel at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I had done Steve's record and I had done live gigs with Steve. We had a little group that we would go play some clubs and some privates and stuff in town. So it was a comfortable addition yeah. uh, working with him. And um, and it was Kuchis, you know, just said, look at, you know, this is my immediate family. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the way we all feel about each other. So. Yeah. It, it's kind of a, a logical outgrowth, but it, you know, separated by by several decades. Yeah, yeah. You know, I could see that. So yeah, you, you don't want to rush into these things. No, <laughs> I can see that. Now, one but, question. Oh, go I'm ahead, please. It. Yeah, good. Well, no, I'm loving it, and the fact that it's it, it, it's a vocal group. Yeah. And and we're doing and we're doing songs that were created by the guys in the band it's a real to me it's a unique situation yeah uh, from where from where it started what and songs of yours are getting sprinkled in there hmm? when when you guys play live what songs that what are your songs that are on the set list um none oh because uh, i've never been a writer yeah but i, I figured I maybe something you played on no okay maybe something no, stuff you all played we're, we're on not really yeah, we're not really going that route in mm. here. Like so much of, of my career didn't include uh, most of the guys. I mean, Russ and I could really pick a lot of songs that he and I did together. But Pooch didn't do that much studio work. Uh, once things really got going for him, he moved back east and got, got far more into writing and production mm-hmm. at that point. And the stuff that I did with Waddy was was other things too mm-hmm. i mean waddy and i met doing a bobby womack record yeah so uh, you know my contribution to, to the immediate family at least at this point is the bass parts that i played on all these songs yeah. that we're doing yeah and and, and I'm, I'm quite content there good um i think that's probably why i haven't been <laughs> on one of the songs okay um, i just it, it, it's kind of weird, you know, when you're starting out and you're ending up working with guys like James Taylor and Jackson Brown and stuff. You work with like some of the greatest writers mm-hmm. of the generation, mm-hmm. and if you, if you potentially have an inferiority complex, <laughs> it goes into full bloom. Yeah. <laughs> That's around, so true. Around those guys. Right, right. Yeah. Um, like, okay. Why try? 
yeah well let me ask you this then and i've asked the others this same question i'm curious what your response is why do people call lee sklar you're one of the greatest bass players most successful most called upon bass players in history why what is the thing that you bring to the table that's so magic people want it well, I always tell people when I do clinics, I said the most important thing is lose the gag reflex. Mm, really? Why? What do you mean? Explain that. <laughs> it, it's a joke. So okay. When you're giving a bubble job to the guy that's going to hire you, you, you don't choke on him. <laughs> okay. it, 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 it's just being facetious. I was no, I, some I, greater, I, you know, uh, parable no, of no, all that. Just, okay, got it. You're, you're talking to junior high school here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to pinpoint because I know so many unbelievably great bass players, and you know, and it makes me wonder why did why do I get the call and not them? But yeah. I think there's a lot of things that come into play. Uh, um, I've really spent, to me, my whole career honoring songs mm -hmm. and songwriters. So I've always looked at when I get called to work on something. You know, what can I do to make this better and not impose myself on a song mm -hmm. or anything like that? So I, I've, I've got good ears. So I really listen to songs and try to find parts that can become a hook within the song or just be completely supportive of it. Mm -hmm. I've tried to always be professional about the gig. So like if it's a 10 a.m. session, I show up at 930 and I'm mm -hmm. set up and I've um, tuned and ready to play when 10 o'clock rolls around and if there's charts have been set out I go through all the charts to make sure there's no, no shocks or surprises mm -hmm. in it Good. and I and I like to I like to engage when when we cut a track um, you know I go right into the control room with mm -hmm. you know the artists and the producer and stuff and I listen to the playbacks and make suggestions or not um, mm -hmm. but I, you, you first off you want to be somebody that people don't mind being around because there's a number of players in yeah. town and I won't name them that are such a drag that no matter how good they are, nobody wants them in the room. They become like a downer right. in it. And I've always kind of looked at my gig as, as part playing and part cheerleader Yeah, of, of keeping the energy level up and, and the enthusiasm for the project up. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, but it's, it can, it can be nebulous too. I'm really not, not sure. Maybe everybody else was busy and I wasn't. So mm -hmm. they called me. I don't, you well, know, that's you part just of don't it. know. You have to be a good hang. You have to be reliable. And it sounds like you check both those boxes and those might be the biggest ones, you know? They, um, they're, they're certainly up there with the playing part of it. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me throw another few songs at you. Is, are you playing the bass sure. on nine to five i played bass on the whole album except that song oh really okay yeah yeah it was one of these things they had cut that that track and then when they decided to continue on and do a whole album mike post who i did like all his tv shows from mm -hmm. rockford files 18 uh hill street blues you're playing the bass on all those theme songs
Yeah. Oh, no. Magnum T.I. Taxi. Yeah. Not Taxi, but uh, Simon and Simon, uh, <laughs> Golden Girls. Wow. Um, I mean, it, you know, the thing I, I, I've always liked about my gig is I think the thing I take the most pride in is being a working musician. Yeah. Yeah. And working yeah. means you take you know the work that comes in, and that's why, you know, I'm just as proud of having played on "It's Raining Men" and mm -hmm. "I Am Woman" as mm -hmm. I am on a Phil Collins record. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Um, I was gonna. I was yeah, I was. I so we try to cover the business side on here sensitively and respectfully, and I am curious. Yeah. You say you weren't, you know, a songwriter, but you've been so busy and had such a full career for all this time. When you get that royalty statement in the mailbox, what's the biggest, what's the biggest earner on your resume? Nothing. I don't get any residuals. Really? Yeah. That can't be. You don't get like royalty, you know, mechanical royalties from Phil or from Rockford no. Files or anything? No. Well, like with the TV things, there's there's a general fund that all the musicians who work in the business, based on what you've done, it's the special payments fund. And the people in the orchestras that do the movies, everybody's a part of this fund. So you get a, okay. a check every year for that. But that, it, it could be somewhere, you know, around eight grand or okay. something like that. It's not, it's not you're not going to buy a house with yeah. it. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and with Phil, Phil was kind enough when we did the but serious album he gave us a half a point on the record nice but that's that's it i mean i never made any royalties off of pretty much off of james taylor jackson brown ronson nothing wow the only people that really made anything were the, were the writers so involved. Do, you, and I, do you pay yeah. your bills then through live all live work and session work then yeah okay yeah I'm, I'm a, I tell people I'm a plumber. You know, I'm an hourly wage earner. Yeah. Like during this pandemic, I've gotten zero money coming in because yeah. I'm not working. Yeah. Wow. I so. just assumed I someone mean, with your pedigree would yeah. have, uh, you know, royalties coming in. Yeah. No, most most people assume that and they see the like the artists who I work with and they assume that we're all on a par. Mm -hmm. But literally, I mean, for... I probably made a thousand dollars for every million Phil made. Wow! Oh my gosh! Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. That's why I asked that question. I don't think regular people understand that part of the business. So that's why I wanted to mention. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's the nature of the beast. I mean, I am. Uh, when you're a side man, you're a, you're a, a for hire mm -hmm. person, and and when you're working, you make your money, and uh, and and sometimes you can dictate what you're making on things, you know, or on tour. Um, touring is is usually with the artists that I've toured with is a, is a better financial and than than the studio work. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of like just like with my with my um, YouTube thing. Yeah, I can't. I'm not making hardly any money on that at all because mm -hmm. I can't monetize it because yeah. everything's copyright protected. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sitting. I'm sitting here looking. You know, people are talking about. Well, man, you should be getting X amount, you know, for you know different, you know, views. Uh -huh. And I'm looking at, at Susudio, and I've got like six hundred thousand views on my Susudio video, and zero money. Yeah. Oh, it's weird. So, man, it is what it is. You yeah. Know? I mean, I could either be pissed, you know, bugged and bitter about it, or go, 
you know, just doing what I've done has afforded me a, a nice life. You know, yeah. I'm not I'm not rich and 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 anything, but I'm comfortable. And if I never worked again, I'm solvent. Good. Good. I don't. Okay, that's the big. I don't have any extravagant lifestyle. Good. Okay. Um, now you mentioned Mike Post, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was Joey Scarberry. I talked to him a while ago. Super nice guy. Not, no, no ego at all. I mean, he's, you know, he's not in the music business, doesn't want to be. He sells cars now, I think. But you were pulled in to play on uh, Greatest American Hero and the rest of that album. Was that something that had yeah. a memory attached to it? Or was that another gig that just kind of flew by? Well, well, it was all based on the TV show. Yeah. And for a bit of history, I was in a band in 1967 called Group Therapy. And we, through a, a connection, ended up meeting Mike Post, and he mm. produced us. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Mike was the musical director for the Andy Williams TV show, mm -hmm. and he also uh, produced Classical Gas with Mason Williams. Mm. So we did we did all, all the, the album, and we weren't allowed to play on the album. The Wrecking Crew played on the oh, album. I mean, wow. Hal Blaine and Joe Kay. We were like these kids that hadn't experienced the studio before. So when mm -hmm. we went in, they brought in the pros. Wow. And I sat there l looking at all these people through the window at United Recorders going, you know, we, were, we sang on our record, but we weren't allowed to play. Um, and looking at all these people out there and Hal Blaine and, and you know, Dennis Budimir and Mike Melvoin and all these people going, I could never do that. That's like an amazing thing what they're doing. And three years later, I was working with them every day. Wow. And when, when Mike started to do television um, music with his partner, Pete Carpenter, uh, one of the first shows they did was The Rockford Files. Mm -hmm. And Mike remembered me from group therapy, and he knew I could play, mm. and he knew that I had started, you know, that James Taylor had, had taken off at this point. So mm -hmm. he was cognizant that I was part of the scene now. And he called me, and we literally since we had known each other so long ended up doing like every one of his tv shows wow and uh, and it was it was great i mean the band the orchestras were always great the the, the shows were fun and uh cool it it, it went on for de you know for decades yeah we were doing that and, wild uh, it was it, it was great that's great really and those fun. those theme songs are songs in and of themselves practically everybody who grew up then members remembers those songs yeah you know? Yeah, there yeah. was that period, you know, of like the 
Father Knows Best would leave yeah. it to be her and Amos and Aunt, all those shows, the mm-hmm. theme songs really were mm-hmm. thematic. Yeah. And and Mike and, and Pete Carpenter really understood that. Now, Pete was much older than Mike, and he eventually passed away, and then Mike continued on, mm-hmm. on his own. But when I would listen to, like, the Rockford Files and, and all those shows, you know, and, and the A-Team and Magnum P.I. and... Mm-hmm. Uh, 10 Speed and Brown Shoe and Hill Street Blues and L.A. Law and all these, these shows. It was very distinctive and yeah. had a, a really good signature yeah. uh, about each of those. And, yeah. and I really enjoyed it. But like I said, the orchestras were great. Mike hired a team of writers to work with him to do all the internal writing within the show. And they were really good. Like Walter Murphy was great. Mm. Um, oh, he had a big hit himself. I don't um, remember crap um but but at one point we did one of like the la laws or something and walter did an arrangement of when you wish upon a star and they brought in he did an arrangement that was unbelievable and they brought in a studio singer who sounded just like the guy who did jiminy cricket in the in the original movie (laughs) and when when that cue ended the whole orchestra stood up and clapped yeah oh wow that's great you know i mean yeah, there's just those moments where yeah. you just go, I love this. Yeah, so much. I bet, and, I bet. And I, and I feel so fortunate that, that I've crossed so many genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have. With it. Yeah. I, um, I, I want to go back to the beginning for one of those, and that's working sure. with Paul Williams. Because yeah. he's one of the most gifted songwriters ever, but by his own admission, he got so bogged down with drugs and everything that he just flat out disappeared. And now he's clean. And I just think of him as such a force for good in this world these days. But you were there at the beginning playing on, you know, his versions of old fashioned love songs. And we've only just begun and stuff like that. We've only just begun to live. and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way We've only just begun To live Before Sun, we fly so many roads to choose. We start out walking and learn to run. Yes, we've just begun. That are new to us Watching the signs along the way Talking it over Just the two of us Working together day to day Together
first of all, was what's he like to work with? Because he seems like an absolute angel now who may have been the complete opposite back then. And then secondly, was it as debaucherous as he made it sound? I saw the dark side. <laughs> really? Okay. Uh, but, but it wasn't really a dark side. When we were in the studio, you know, no, no matter how kind of fucked up he might have been, it didn't come out in the sessions. Uh, it came out in his normal in his normal life. Okay. He was really a consummate pro when we got in the studio and, and did those albums. And, and he was one of those kind of guys. Like when we were doing one of the albums. I mean, when we were at, we, we did them all at A and M. And Michael, uh, his name was Michael Jackson, but he mm. was a, a producer who, who worked at um, A&M and at, at was doing uh, an album with Tom Jans and Mimi Farina, who was Joan Baez's sister, mm. uh, with him, with them, with Michael Jackson producing it. And Craig Gergie was on the session, and that's how I met Craig and mm. brought him into the fold when Carol left James mm. to pursue okay. her own career. Mm-hmm. But we were in the studio over at A&M working, and it was really late at night, and we hadn't taken a dinner break. And Paul went out, and there was a really beautiful restaurant down the street. And I'm talking like 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> he calls the restaurant up, and we come out of the studio into the, to the hallway lobby area. There's tables set with linen, Ooh. and he has a huge, beautiful catered dinner brought wow. down to the studio for the band. No way. I mean, way. Paul was a... a yeah, he was so giving, and when we did his first solo tour, we went back east and played like Main Point, My Father's Place, and Bitter End, and he put everybody up at the Plaza Hotel. Um, it was David Spinoza, mm. I think Kenny Asher on keyboards, Rick Murata on drums, and myself, mm. and then he, Paul's brother, Mentor Williams, was with mm. us, who wrote Drift Away for Dobie Gray. Oh, I love that song, um, yeah. Yeah, and that was that was Paul's brother. Okay, and who passed who passed away a, few, a number of years ago, but like we got to the last day of, of being there, and we're sitting around going, God, we're not flying out till later tonight. What do we want to do? And Paul goes, Let's go rent a helicopter, <laughs> and we go down to the river to the heliport, and we rent a helicopter and flew all had them fly us all over Manhattan, and they flew up to the face of the Statue of Liberty, and people were waving at us. <laughs> we were waving. Wow. At us. I mean, Paul. He was driving a Bugatti. He was. He went out. I think he was flying with with Jimmy Webb in in his glider, oh. and they crashed. Oh. He almost got killed. Whoa! Uh, Paul was a maniac. Paul was a maniac. Plus, he was such a unique character because yeah. of just his stature, his voice, yeah. everything about him was unique. And there was a movie back in the day called The Loved One with Jonathan Winters uh, uh-huh. that was. A, bl- a black comedy about the funeral business, kind of a, a rip on Forest Lawn. Uh-huh. And and Jonathan Winters played the Blessed Reverend who ran Whispering Glades, which was this funeral home. But he also played the Blessed Reverend's brother who ran a pet cemetery. And it was like all this shit going on. But there was a, a, a kid there was a kid in the movie that was Gunther, the boy genius, the twelve uh-huh. year old genius. And that was Paul Williams when he was 25. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You know, so yeah. it, his career, and you look at the Smokey and the Bandit movies yeah. and all this stuff, Paul. But Paul's you know, the president of ASCAP yeah. at this point. Yeah. And he is an absolute, one of the greatest examples of a survivor and how yeah. to get your shit together yeah. and, and make something of yourself. Now, 
certainly he could have spent the rest of his life doing nothing because he probably gets more money than just about anybody in terms of mailbox money mm -hmm. because of his writing. But he really became a force of doing the right thing and doing good. Yeah. And um, I love Paul dearly. He's one of the sweetest people I've good. ever worked with. And the, the, one of the worst parts of this pandemic was every year we do a show at the Library of Congress oh. called We Write the Songs. And what it is is they bring in about eight artists, and I'm part of the house band. We've got like a five-piece house band and with a couple of background singers. And what happens is they'll bring in like Jimmy Webb or uh, Hart mm. or uh, Randy Newman, mm. all these different people, Lyle Lovett. And the, the room is pretty much filled with like a lot of senators and, and government people. And these artists talk about the process of songwriting and the protection that's needed for songwriters. This is really almost like a lobbying thing mm -hmm. just to get songwriters not screwed. Yeah. And so we do the show and, and then we'll usually do a song with Paul, but Paul's like becomes the keynote speaker at it. And we had, to, it was in May. So we mm. had to cancel it this year oh, because of the pandemic. It sucks. Uh, which really was a drag. But there, there was a guy like two years ago who wrote all, he was like in his 90s and he wrote all of the um, Harry Belafonte hit songs, oh, Banana Boat songs. Yeah. And, and he was like like a 14-year-old hyper kid when he came in. He was oh. like so great and stuff. And and through this, like Hal David, mm -hmm. back rack and Hal David, was before Paul was like the president, and uh, we became really close friends. Uh, Hal was um, just an incredibly great guy, and I'm still really close friends with his wife Eunice. Mm. And uh, it's just this whole scene, this whole yeah. music thing. It, it's like this really beautiful bouillabaisse. base. Yes, that's it. You know, there's so many beautiful elements to this meal, and each one makes it better. Yeah, you know, yep. as a whole. That's perfectly said. Yeah. Yes. Um, now you've brought him up a couple of times. I love Lyle Lovett, and my introduction to Lyle was his large band uh, album from like '89. I remember buying that in the record yeah, store. Yeah, that's, that's how I met him. Right. Now I was curious because he was still fairly new at the time, and you are somebody. And this this is this question is going to apply to a couple other people. I'm going to throw at you. What goes into deciding who Lee Sklar is going to lend his talents to? Because Lyle Lovett is not, you know, capital letters Lyle Lovett just yet. He's still kind of a little guy. But you saw something in him, I guess, to attach yourself. And all of you did. A lot of the immediate family guys played with him. So you uh, saw something to attach yourselves to for years. Why? What was it? Well, first off... I'm a working musician, so when I get called to go to work, I don't scrutinize the artist. Mm, okay. I, I just go to work. Okay. Um, I And some of the best projects I've worked on never even got heard. Yeah. Um, but they were good albums that for some reason never even got released. I got the call because I was going to Nashville on a regular basis because uh, I, I did most of Jimmy Bowen's work down there. So I got a call to do an album. You know, mm. and and I come in the studio, and there's this guy that's got hair like you know, it's, it's like a David Lynch movie. It's like uh -huh. a racer head, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and and the first song we cut was you know, kind of making a cheeseburger. Uh huh. And Here I am. I'm not finished. Life is so uncertain. Here I am. 
and emotional compatibility are at the very least difficult, if not impossible, to come by, we could always opt for the more temporal gratification of sheer physical attraction. That wouldn't make you a shallow person, would it? Here I am Yes, it's me Take my hand Chevrolet, what Dodge is to Chrysler, what Cornflakes... I love it. I'm running this song down, and I'm going, this is really out. Because, like, I was a big, huge Mothers of Invention uh, fan and all, like, the really esoteric groups. And I thought, this guy is really cool. And uh, and so I loved it. Uh, but yeah. it was... I had no preconceptions. I didn't know who who Lyle was okay. or anything. But, just a gig. But we hit it off right and ended up doing a whole bunch, you know, the Road Sand Sonata, a bunch yeah. of different records. And then I, I started touring with him, but we would mix it up because um, Victor Krauss would play upright with him on some mm. tours. And then I would do a tour with an electric and Victor's Allison Krauss's brother. Oh. And he's one of the, the, the best upright players around. So we, we would kind of trade off, and I always loved it when I'd go out with him because Russ was usually on drums. So, you know, it was a, my opportunity to be back with Russell again. Yeah. But Lyle is Lyle is so beautifully weird and quirky <laughs> I and, love him. and gifted. And he's, a, he's a fine guitarist, mm-hmm. and his songwriting is just really, there's nobody quite like him. Mm-hmm. And, and I love when he goes out and does his songwriter tours with, mm-hmm. like, he and Robert Earl Keane and, mm-hmm. and, you know, like three, maybe three or four of those guys just go out mm-hmm. acoustically with their guitars and, and sit on the stage and trade songs yeah. for the audience. Yeah. And it's magic to me. I, yeah, I agree. I love him a lot. And, um, yeah, I wondered what the, uh, you saying that about a gig makes a lot of sense. So here's another one for you. And I wonder if this one was a gig too, because similar situation, I'm thinking specifically of Jude Cole. And he did an album in uh, the late 80s called A View from Third Street that I really like. And you play on that album. Won't you pick up the phone? Because I know that you're home. Too many words have not been said for us to be living alone. Now all of the fighting
Yeah. But and, he was, uh, uh, he's not really... a big deal either. But again, you got called in and you committed and it's a great album. And, and I just wonder why. Yeah, well, for me, for me, uh, one of the things I take my most pride in is being a working musician. Mm -hmm. So to me, when the phone rings and somebody offers me a gig, I go. Yeah. And, and most of the time, I really have no idea what I'm showing up for. I don't know who the artist is, what the music's going to be like. And that's part of the excitement and the stress of being mm -hmm. a studio musician of, you know, you're going to show up and you better have your shit together. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't have the luxury of not getting a take. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it's not like other jobs where you could put your tools away and come back tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, the studio's booked for that day, and you've got to leave with tracks. And um, and I walked in, and, and as soon as Jude started running songs, I, I just went, oh, man, this cat's great. Yeah. And, and then it was funny. There was one song on there. It had a really interesting bass part hmm. on it. And, and I started to work on it, and Jude had done the demo of it, he, and he played the bass part on it, but he had this kind of crappy bass at home. And I look at him, and I said, he said, God, I love the way your bass sounds. And I said, play it. Mm. I said, it's going to take me a while to learn a part you already know, Yeah. and you play it perfectly, so use my bass, and you play the part. No way. And, and he did it. That's what's on the record, because... To me, at the end of the day, the most important thing is the end result yeah. of, of the project. Um, it's got nothing to do with me showing myself off or anything. Um, I'm the first guy to say, look, I don't think I'm the right guy for this song or something, and say, call this guy. It'll be better yeah. with, with them. And, uh, and it's really that end product. I think that's that's imperative. Okay. And, uh, but, you know, I, it's always been great. I didn't know who Laura Branigan was when I went mm. in the studio and we cut Gloria. You're on Gloria? So I don't think I knew that. 
yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, but there's there, there's so many of those kind of things uh, yeah. that have come along where I had no idea who the artist was going to be, and I walk in, and, and it's really cool stuff. And and I get all these weird calls. I mean, I did an album with Billy Bob Thornton. I was following a girl, a Canadian girl, on a great American trip. She was thumping the bass in an improv group on their way to being hip. After a few nights on the bus, while we stopped to get some fuel, her head small and her rage got big and she challenged me to a duel in a truck stop there on the aisle where they sell those day glow hats I took up with a girl who had eyes like an alley cat she took me her husband's home before that awful fight. That to me is really the excitement mm-hmm. of it is is the uncertainty of, of what you're gonna do every day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um let me throw a couple more at you. Uh this is great sure. by the way. Thank you, Lee. I this is just gold. All these stories are gold. Okay, there there may not be anything here, but you, I know you've worked on some movie soundtracks and one of a soundtrack that I really like is the soundtrack to Doctor Detroit which is one of the worst movies of all time. But the soundtrack oh, yeah, is really yeah, good. <laughs> but are you on there somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, I'm on that, in that, in there. I'll tell you, the fun, for me, as a timely experience, one of my favorite soundtracks I got to work on was Groundhog Day. I, I tell everybody, you know, I worked on the movie, but little did I ever think I'd be living it. <laughs> That's what, since quarantine, every day it's been like Groundhog Day. That's true. <laughs> it's like, oh, so that's weird. so true. Yeah. Also, tell us about, now you did, you posted a video about this, so you don't have to repeat yourself too much, but David Bowie's my favorite, and you played on Cat People. Cat but I don't think you play on yeah. the Cat People version that has Stevie Ray Vaughan and is on the Let's Dance album. I think you're on the soundtrack version. No. So how, what, yeah, tell we us did this the story. Soundtrack. See these eyes. 
It's just the fear of losing you. Don't you know my name? Well, the thing was, um, first off, David wasn't there, so I, I never, I never met him. Okay. I, I had been doing work with Giorgio Moroder. We did some like Donna Summer stuff and mm. Village People, and, and you know, during that period of that mm -hmm. disco era, and it, it was another project. He called me to, you know, to work on something, and it turned out to be uh, Cat People, mm. and then uh, so. You know, a, a lot of things. It's like I've done a lot of recording with Diana Ross, like Mahogany and mm. things, you know, the theme from Mahogany. You're on Mahogany? I, I didn't know that. met diana I mean, she's mm. never been at a session we've done okay. we would get the tracks and then they would send them off to her wherever she was on the road or something yeah. and she would do her vocals there so i mean for me a lot of this really is it's it's, it's work you yeah. know you go in and you're, you're hired to do a job yeah and you do it I, I think when we did mahogany i think there was we were the fourth hal blaine and i were the fourth rhythm rhythm section to do that song they mm -hmm. weren't happy with it the way that it went and then when we did it because of the way we played it they that's what they ended up using okay so okay yeah, yeah i had no idea you posted a video about the spinners and how much you love them yeah. and i um so i mean if there's one i don't know if there's one uh, thing that's missing from a lot of you guys's um resumes is there's not a ton of R&B in there but I can tell when you were talking about the spinners how much you love that stuff and you were I don't remember one of the other videos you were talking about playing the eighth notes for disco songs and stuff like that how much you love that uh, yeah. I don't know were you just not offered as many R&B gigs were that was that were those taken up with someone else yeah to, to an extent I mean I, I, I ended up doing like I did a, like a bunch of work with with Gladys Knight Dion Warwick oh, nice. okay um, Johnny Mathis, I mean, all, all kinds of um, gigs like that. But when it came down to some of those those groups like the Spinners or something, they they were more like 
be it back east or, or muscle shoals mm. or, or different areas. There, there were different rhythm sections, but I know that, that Bob Babbitt was a dear friend and he mm. played bass on Rubber Band Man and did a lot of stuff like Midnight Train to Georgia. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I, I had a huge appreciation. And I was fortunate that when I was in high school, I had a friend named Terry Smith. And Terry, he had a massive, he was an R&B freak and had a mm -hmm. massive record collection. And we used to just go over to his house and sit there and listen to James Brown and Joe Tex and kind of you name it. And, and he had it. And I really loved it. And when the late, kind of mid-60s, late-60s came around, I ended up hooking up into the Chitlin circuit because I hooked up with a, a harmonica, George Smith, who was mm. one of the great harmonica players of that period and got to play with Albert Collins and Jimmy Reed and Lightning Hopkins and Magic Sam and Big Mama Thornton. Yeah. So I, I, I just, you know, it's kind of like, you know, having done Spectrum with Billy Cobham mm. and it's it's one of the most quintessential albums of that rock jazz fusion period. hardly ever get calls to play that kind of music yeah, and people okay. will, I'll be, I'll be, in, I'll be in conversations with people and somehow that come, that'll come up and they'll say, you played on Stratus? <laughs> and I go, yeah. And they go, I had no idea you did that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so, yeah. you, know you, you, you can be kind of a victim of some of this stuff yeah, too. Like when I started games. Yeah, I didn't really listen to singer-songwriter stuff. When I met James, I was in a hard rock band. Mm. And all of a sudden, I'm like the go-to guy for the sensitive singer-songwriters. And then people think of that that's what you do. And I worked on some album projects that they would call me for all the ballads and then the uptunes, they would try somebody else. And I'd go, I like doing that other stuff more than the ballads. Let mm -hmm. me do some of them. Mm -hmm. And they would be surprised at it. Mm -hmm. Oh God! I didn't play play that. So, mm -hmm. Nice. You know, um, it is what it is. Yeah. So that leads me to 
a question I wanted to know. Is there anyone that you haven't played with that you wish you had? And maybe there's tons of those, but is there one in particular where you're just like, I know that I could add so much to this person's whatever sound if I just got the chance? Yeah, well, there's there's an element of wishing I could play with them and I don't know if I could add anything to them, but like Steve Winwood. I've I love fan, Steve Winwood, yes. I liked that period. Um, I think he's just amazing, and I never had an opportunity to, to play with him. You know, mm -hmm. I would love to. Whether I would make anything better, uh, I don't know, but just the opportunity. It's like mm -hmm. when I got called to work with Joe Cocker. I mean, I mm -hmm. sat there just pinching myself, going, that's Joe Cocker. Mm -hmm. that's, he's standing there. When I worked with B.B. King, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going, B.B. King, holy crap. Yeah. Um, you know, I would love to have worked with Elton. I loved his music. You know, I worked on Nigel Olson's solo stuff. Mm -hmm. We've been friends forever. But the opportunity to do it never lined up. Uh, there was a terrible period when his bass player, Bob Birch, was hit by a truck up in Canada mm -hmm. and almost killed. And they called me, in the, and they called me from, yeah. from Elton's camp and asked if I could come and finish the tour. But I was working with Veronique Sanson in in France at that point and I couldn't do it huh. and there was another time when they called me from Fleetwood Mac and asking Ooh. me if I could do some stuff with them because and I'm just suddenly blanking um, John, John McBee right. had just I think he had had like some kind of surgery hmm. and and I and I, there was nothing I would have loved more but I was already yeah. busy doing something else yeah so, okay you know but, but there's a, there's lots of really I hear artists all the time that I go, gotta be. It's more like not what I could do for them, but how much fun it would be to uh, be working with them. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I got one more that I don't know if you'll remember. Um, I you played a little bit with the BGS, I believe, on the ESP album. Never. Never. Really? That's on. I, uh, no. Somewhere. I've read that somewhere. Okay. I, I know there's there, there's some mis there's misinformation out there. I think Russ may have done something with the BGs, but I never, I never had the opportunity to work with them. Hmm. Okay, so I would, I would, I would have enjoyed it, except I hear you know, it was pretty arduous yeah. working with them, you know, because yeah. there was a lot, a lot of nitpicking. Which, you know, the end result was was great, but mm -hmm. you know, the process. A lot of guys I know said, "Oh God, you know, what a pain really? in the ass." Okay, but, good to know. But I was, you know, I was, I was never there for that. But, okay, but there, there, that. There's other things. There was a girl, an artist named Jane Getz, hmm. and her her name as an artist was Mother Hen, and um, she was this kind of folk jazz pianist, singer, songwriter, and I remember being in the studio with her, and I had a can of Coke <laughs> sitting there, and for some reason, we didn't quite connect, and she was using my can of Coke as her ashtray, <laughs> and it, at a certain point, I took a big swig of Coke and I just swallowed down this mountain of ashes from her smoking. <laughs> that's my memory of that session. Oh, you that's know, great. That, oh, I love that. that that's great. So, um, you know. Speaking of drinking a Coke, I uh, some of the videos, I was watching a video, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a little bit more about this because I learned something about you, I think, that is really interesting. But there was a video on YouTube of you and Russ, Russ doing an interview with you from a few years ago. And you were yeah. talking about how you've never been much of a drinker. And um, 
Were you, I mean, did you not get caught up in like the drinking and the drugs and the sex and the rock and roll parts no. of the rock and roll back then? I was really, I was lucky. I started to see the dark side of it really early. Uh, I mean, I, I was, I was working with some guys back when I was a teenager and one of them died of a meth overdose. Ooh, and yikes. so I kind of like, I was always the designated driver. I was the guy that picked everybody up and made sure everybody mm -hmm. got home. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was 16. And so I, I was, and I don't look at it as anything, you know, like virtuous or anything. I just, I saw really the, a bad side to like acid and, and, and heroin and, and all of it. And thought, this isn't for me. I'm too much of a control freak. You know, mm. I'm too much of a type A personality yeah. to really let go. And I'm sure if I took acid, I'd be one of the guys who, who had a bad acid trip. Because right. I wouldn't embrace it. Right. Um, so, okay. I mean, it just never, never appealed to me at all. I saw no, no glamour, or anything. but it was, it was very funny that a really successful musician friend of mine, we were having a Christmas party at our house and he was at, at the house and he was sitting in my entry hall looking around and he goes, Oh, so this is what you can get when you don't do blow. <laughs> he That's had a great gone comment. through a lot of money. <laughs> blow and not a lot to show for it oh man that is great that is really great yeah now something else i learned yeah. i think in that interview that rusted with you are do you do like metal art um that's my favorite that was my favorite thing when i when i was in when i was in college i started as a music major in college and hated it um i was in the music department for two years and finally bailed because i realized what they were really wanting to do was groom you to be a teacher mm. and i never wanted to be a music teacher i wanted to be a player so i went up to the administration complex and took a series of aptitude tests and my highest aptitude was science and art mm. and so so i i co-majored both of those and i was mm. actually thinking about looking at at a career as possibly like a medical illustrator or something oh, like that because I was into like hyper real, you know, more hyper realism in my drawings and things like that. But the thing that I actually enjoyed the most was welding. And wow. um, I think a lot of it was because when you put down that welding mask, your entire world is about the size of a penny. Yeah. And, and everything goes away. And, and I became really close friends with my teachers and uh, I went to Cal State Northridge, San Fernando Valley State College, and off campus there was a, a, a big building that was built as, as an annex to the school that was on a street called Halstead, so it was called the Halstead Building, mm. and that was the sculpture labs was up there. And I became friends with these teachers, and they couldn't get away with it now, but they gave me keys to the building, mm. and I would go to... I would, you know, I'd finish a day in, in, in school, and a lot of times I'd go over to the Halstead building at midnight, and I'd work till six in the morning welding. Mm. And uh, wow! And I, lo I loved it. I, I really enjoyed the singularity of the experience. Yeah. I wasn't like with music. You're you're always waiting on people. You're subject sure. to other people's whims. Yeah. And when I was doing my artwork, it was all up to me. That's true. I, you're the I creator. Yeah. Yeah. Is there ever so, any concerns um, about hands, you know, doing any damage to oh, you? I've, I've injured myself so badly. Really? Um, my hands, you know, it's weird. I, I always sit there and I go, 
the only thing I've ever really hurt in myself is my hands. I've got really? so many stitches and, you know, I, I've burned them. I've, I've lost most of the cartilage in my thumb joints that you know, every, every note I play feels like I've got an ice pick going in my thumb. Wow. Um, I got, you know, burned, you know, welding. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, but but for me, I was always brilliant about it in hindsight after I was, dry, you know, going to the emergency room to get it fixed. Mm. Then, I, then I realized where I screwed up yeah. as compared to, like, don't do it. Yeah. And, yeah. But, okay. yeah, I loved metal. And I, re- I enjoyed metal for the standpoint that, if you got impatient and you picked the piece up and threw it across the room, it wasn't going to be a piece of Carrera marble shattering. You might dent something or you might right. even improve it. Yeah. You know? That's true. So, now, is this stuff like for sale? Could I buy a piece of Lee Sklar metal art and put it in my house? I've only got a few pieces that I possess and they're just all sitting in my attic. Oh, okay. So this is like a, I've never, a commercial I, venture. This is just an outlet for you. No, I never I never sold anything. Okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. I'd love to see a picture of that, of what that's like. That was really interesting when I learned that. Um, okay, Lee. Well, look, I, uh, I mean, you're a legend, and I feel like there's so many stories out there that I didn't ask the right question to to even prompt what could have been just a gold mine of a story. But I am curious, when you look back... And at your career and everything that's happened, do you have, is there a mo, like, is there a song maybe that you're particularly proud of that we didn't already talk about that you feel like an affection for, or, um, I don't know, like I, you know, I de- I came up with this little thing and I've always really liked that. I have to really have to give that some thought because there's so many that I've mm. always really liked. Um, two things about you personally. One, um, like, I don't even know, are you married? Do you have kids? Uh, no kids, but I'm married, and this coming December, it'll be 50 years. Good for you, man. Yes. Good for you. That is great. That is great. We met in, in, the, we met in the art department in college. Wow. I mean, I've known my, I knew my wife before I knew James. Oh, wow. Good for you. Um, and then last question. You've probably been asked this a million times. When was the last time you were clean-shaven? Um, when they handed me my high school diploma in 65. <laughs> <laughs> because it was, the, the rules the rules were very strict back then mm-hmm. and i was like every you know i i looked the part of a hippie but i never was mm-hmm. a hippie mm-hmm. yeah i i i, I love just playing music and wow. all that but i i didn't i didn't live the lifestyle but it was really restrictive and when they gave me my high school diploma i just basically said fuck you <laughs> with you and your rules and all that crap yeah, and uh, and kind of just stopped at that point. And yeah. I, I cut it all the time because I it got to a point where it was long. It was getting in my strap locks uh-huh. on my base, and you, know, you have to you know be somewhat reasonable about you know. Right. I still have a sign that I I have a sign that I stole from college from the shop that said, "If you have long hair, wear a hairnet," <laughs> because guys were constantly getting their hair yeah. caught in tools and. Uh-huh. You know, there's nothing like long hair and a drill press. Yeah, yeah. You get hurt real bad. That sounds terrible. Um, One other thing, you mentioned telling people to fuck off. You're working on a book of pictures you've taken of people flipping you off. Is that right? Yeah. I have about 11,000 photographs of people giving me the finger. 
and um, I I've hooked up with a guy who's gonna who do, does books um, art books and uh, we're gonna work on this and figure out how to organize it thematically and different stuff and and how to make it interesting and make a coffee table book but it'll probably you know ultimately have maybe 800 pictures or something like that in wow. it but I've got everybody from you know Jack Nicholson to Gwyneth Paltrow to Phil Collins to James Taylor to Bernie Williams from the New York Yankees yeah. and yeah. but but also it's the the man on the street uh-huh. you know, I, I find like a, a guy a wino sitting on a bench and I just you know ask him Flip me off. That's great. <laughs> they, they, That's they, I got the whole Nokia theater here in LA in one shot. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. So it's 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 just a fun goof, but it yeah. but it, it could end up being really a fun book. That sounds um, fascinating. I don't care about the fingers. The thing oh. that I find the most fascinating is people's faces when oh. you empower them to give you the finger. Uh, and it runs the entire gamut of human emotion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've got, you know, I've got Burt Bacharach and Hal Davis. No way. Kind of That's great. So it's fun. I was going to ask you. Be, I hope it'll be It fun. sounds awesome. I was going to ask you, I saw you flip off the camera on one of your videos. I used to flip people off where I would, you know, uh, my middle finger is up and the other three are bent at the knuckle. But then yeah. the last few years... I keep the middle up and I bend the others all the way down and hold them down with my thumb. I mean, you know, there's different ways to flip people off. You sounds like you do the first one. The you're you're bending at well, the knuckle. I, I I do the first one, but when I got Jack Black, Jack Black gave me both. He said, "What do you want, balls or no balls?" <laughs> yes, oh, that's so great. That's genius. It's real. It's real. And then there's other people like when James Taylor does it. He does. He he gives you the finger with the finger next to your little finger rather than your middle finger. Oh, really? He goes. <laughs> over, he does it over one. And Jim Keltner, the great Jim Keltner, does yeah. the same thing. Wow. Um, but I got like Charlie Watts and that all kinds great. of characters. That is great. So it cool. should be a lot of fun. Cool. Well, look, Lee, you're a legend. I've been wanting to talk to you for years. I am so grateful that we got to do this. I'm so grateful that the immediate family is a thing. I was gonna. I told the others. Some friends of mine saw one of your shows in L.A. and they could not stop raving about it. And I hope one day things can get back to normal somewhat, so that if you pass through Denver, I can be there because you guys are legends, and I love you a lot. Thank you for talking with I me. I love it, and I'll tell you one of my favorite Mexican restaurants that I go to out here is called La Cabanita. And they just opened one in Denver. Really? Ooh. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm going to go check it out. Yeah, called La Cabinita. Okay, I'll go uh, check it out. I'll let you know. Man, the original owner um, retired here, and his son took over the restaurant. That's right up, it's like 15 minutes from uh-huh. my house. My wife and I, two of our best friends, moved to Littleton. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have friends in Overton, Nevada. Okay. So Littleton, they live there, and... Um, they called us and they said, you're not going to believe it. They're, 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 can't La Cabanita open? Because we used to go to La Cabanita all the time. They said, they opened in Denver. Oh, man, and, I'm uh, there. They go there all, they up all the time from Littleton to go there. And Great. the son went there and opened it. So. Cool. Okay, I'm going. Well, look, thank you, Lee. This, was, this meant a lot to me. Thank you so much. All right, there you have it. Lee Sklar, one of the best there is. Per his request... We want to close it out with some more immediate family. 
This is a live version of them playing All She Wants to Do is Dance, which of course was a huge hit for Don Henley, but was written by Danny Korchmar, Cooch. So anyway, hope you guys enjoy that. We're so lucky. We've been putting out the Immediate Family episodes on the third Tuesday of every month. So if you're just here for Immediate Family information, the third Tuesday of September is going to feature the fifth and final member of the band, Russ Kunkel. And uh, I'll tell you more about why that's the last one when we get to it. Uh, next week, we are talking to a, an, an American indie rock goddess. And we'll leave it at that. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. We hope that you guys have been enjoying a lot of the bonus material that we've been putting out this past weekend. We put out that deep dive with producer Bob Rock. He came back on to tell us about the recording of the Colts Sonic Temple album. This weekend, if schedules align, we're going to be putting out another bonus episode with another fantastic producer who produced an album with another legend. So anyway, there's more to come. We're doing the best we can here to document rock history and entertain everybody. So you guys know how to do it. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. If you're new to the podcast or you've been coming around just for the immediate family information, please go into the archives. See if there's other people on there that you would love. If you love the immediate family, there are loads of other episodes that you will enjoy back in the archives. Give us a subscribe. Write us a review in, in Facebook or on iTunes, whatever it is, but stick around and be a part of our immediate family, okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you. Yeah.
Thank you so much. Thanks for sticking around in the rain. We'll see you again. Thank you. How about that? Legends on this stage.